So tonight we are embarking upon a great adventure for you, as, for you and for me. Uh, we're going to be taking a survey through the scriptures, however long that may take us, a year, two years. It's not important. What is important that we're studying God's word. It's good from time to time to, to step back and get an overview, to get the big picture of how all of the books of the Bible fit together. So that's what we're, we're going to be doing over the next few months. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the Bible in general, because as quickly as possible, I want to get into the individual books of the Bible. But I do want to spend a few minutes just talking about the structure of the Old Testament, how it's organized, uh, the books, the order of the books. And so this is what we see in our Bibles. In the Bibles that we have before us today, we have a collection of all of the books of the Bible bound in one single volume. That was not always the case. When the books of the Bible were originally written, they were on scrolls. And it was simply impractical to have one scroll that contained the entire Bible. It was impractical to have one scroll that even contained the entire Old Testament. So you might have a book or a collection of books. You might have a Torah scroll that had the first five books of Moses. And you might have uh, the Psalms in just one book. You might have the five megaloth, the, the festival books, in, in another scroll. So we are accustomed to, the, to this particular order of the books of the Old Testament. We have 17 narrative books, which are in more or less chronological order, or in kind of chronological order. And then we have five wisdom and poetry books. And then we have the 17 prophetic books. And we're familiar with that order of the books. And it's good to have an order so that when Bob or Eric says, turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 10, because you know the order of the books in your Bible and because you know your numbers, you can find that passage of Scripture pretty quickly. So it is good to have an order, to have an order that is the same from one translation to the next. So whether you're reading New King James or King James or NASB or NIV or ESV, you have the same order of books. So that's a good thing. But don't think that there's something divine or inspired about the order of the books. Because there really isn't. It's just a handy way of ordering them. If you look at a Jewish Bible, which the Jewish people refer to as the Tanakh, Tanakh is just a, a Hebrew acronym. That's what they call the Old Testament. They never call it the Old Testament because if you have an Old Testament, that implies that there's a New Testament. and <laughs> They don't believe that the New Testament is the inspired word of God. So they refer to the Tanakh, and Tanakh stands for Torah, that's the T, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. That's what Tanakh stands for. It's just an acronym. So the Torah is the law, the books of Moses. That's the same for Jews and Christians, the first five books. And Torah is often described as the law, but it might be better to, to translate it as uh, instruction or teaching. And sometimes the entire Old Testament is referred to as the Torah. 
Then there are the Nevi'im, the prophets. And this is something that's a little bit different from, for Jews than it is for Christians. They would include both the former prophets and the latter prophets in that grouping. The latter prophets would include both the major and the minor prophets. And then there are the Ketubim, the writings. There are the former poetic books, the Megalot, the five festival books, books that are read on the festivals, and then the latter restoration books. So the law would include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. The prophets. Now this, this is somewhat surprising to Christians because the books of Joshua and Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they think of as the prophets, the former prophets. We usually just think of them as historical books. Uh, the Jewish people think of them as the prophets because in these books you will find stories about Elijah and Elisha. And so the distinction is made between writing prophets and non-writing prophets. Um, we have stories about Elijah and Elisha, but as far as we know, Elijah and Elisha didn't write any books, so there are non-writing prophets. The, the latter prophets are the writing prophets. That would include the three uh, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. The, the 12 minor prophets were often just on one scroll because they were shorter. So the, the designation major and minor has nothing to do with importance or validity or anything like that. The, the 12 minor prophets are just shorter books. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zemunai, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the 12 minor prophets. And then there are the writings. The former uh, poetic or meter books would be Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. And then there are the five megalot or festival books. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentation, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. So the Song of Songs was read on Passover. Ruth was read at um, what we call Pentecost, Shavuot. Lamentations was read on, it's not really a festival, it's, it's actually a, a very sad day in Jewish history, the ninth of Av, the day in which the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And then on that same day, calendar day, uh, it was also destroyed by the Romans. So they have the Babylonians and the Romans you know, centuries apart, but on that same day. Then uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which was read on Sukkot, and then Esther, which was read on Purim. And then finally we have the, uh, the latter restoration books, and that would include Daniel, and that's kind of a surprise to Christians that Daniel is included in the writings, not in the prophets. And then Ezra, Nehemiah, and finally Chronicles, or the second Chronicles. So Whereas you think of Malachi as the end of the Old Testament, Jewish people think of Chronicles as the end of the Old Testament. And this would have been the, the order that people were familiar with in Jesus' day when he was here on the earth in his incarnation. And there are many scriptures uh, in the New Testament which indicate that, that Jesus thought of the order of the scriptures of the Old Testament in that way. Now, let's talk about how we're going to go through the books of the, of the Old Testament. There are actually four eras, we might say, in, in the Old Testament. 
if we want to arrange them chronologically. First, there's the beginnings, first the beginnings of the world and then the beginnings of Israel. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. And then there's the settlement of the promised land. That would be Joshua and Judges. And then there's the kingdom, when, when Israel was a kingdom. First, it was a united monarchy, and then it was a divided into the Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings tell us all about that. And then finally, there's the, the exile and the reconstruction as Israel goes into exile and then comes back from exile. So we have Ezra and Nehemiah. I've kicked around a lot of different ways to approach this, but this is what I came up with. So first of all, we're going to go through those 11 books that are chronological, what we might call time books. And that will give, give you the gist of the, the history, the, the events of the, of the Old Testament. And alongside those time books, there are what I call color books, books that add some important additional information to the, the periods that we have in the, in the time books, but they don't really do anything to move the story along. They're, they just add color. They, they add some additional information. For example, the book of Ruth, it happens during the period of Judges, but there's nothing chronological in the book of Ruth. It doesn't give you any chronological information. So we see Leviticus, which gives us some additional information about the laws that God gave to Israel, laws for the priests and for the people. But once again, it doesn't give us any chronological information. It just adds some information to that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then Deuteronomy, well, that's kind of a, a summary. It, it, it probably only happens over a period of, of a couple of months, but there's some important addresses that, that Moses gives, his final addresses before the people enter the promised land. So that also adds some color. I mentioned the book of Ruth, the book of Esther. It happens during this time when Israel is, is beginning to go back to the promised land. But once again, it doesn't give us a lot of chronological information. And then Chronicle, First and Second Chronicles is just a, a retelling of all of this period of time. We usually think of First and Second Chronicles as dealing with that period of the kingdom, but it actually goes back further than that in, in First Chronicles. It goes clear back to, to the time of Adam. So after we've done that, then we want to go through the poetry and wisdom books. Mostly the poetry and wisdom books are, are from that time of the kingdom, but the one major exception is the book of Job, which uh, many feel is the oldest Bible book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It's generally felt that the events described in the book of Job took place sometime around uh, the time of Abraham. Others think it happened later, but, that, but the general consensus is that it took place during the time of Abraham, around that time. And in the kingdom period, we have psalms, and we usually think of David as the psalmist, and many of the psalms are written by David, but not all of them. In fact, one of them is even written by Moses. Then we have the books, the three books in the Old Testament that were attributed to Solomon. So that would be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And I'm not going to do them in that order. I'm going to do them in a slightly different order because I think that 
those three books were written in dur at different periods in Solomon's life. I think he wrote the, book, the Song of Solomon when he was a young man. He wrote the book of Proverbs when he was middle-aged, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes when he was elderly. So I think I'm going to tr try to follow that uh, sequence in, in Solomon's life. And then finally, we get to the book of Lamentations. Usually Christians just include that within the prophetic books because it was written by Jeremiah. But it, it really is a, a separate uh, poetry and wisdom book. And then after that, we're still not done, then we have the prophets. Like I said, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Uh, so unlike the Jews, we'll, we'll include Daniel in there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the, the 12 minor prophets. And as, as I said, they're not minor because they're less significant, but simply because they're shorter. So there's the, the agenda, if you will, what we're going to do as we approach this class. So at the bottom there, you'll see that I listed all the prophets, but I haven't, I, I've intermingled minor prophets and major prophets, and I put them into four different groups because some, some of the prophets prophesied to the northern kingdom, Israel. I put those in one group. Some of them prophesied to Judah, the southern kingdom. I put them in another group. And then there are the exilic prophets, the prophets who prophesied during the exile, and then the prophets of the, of the restoration when Israel began to come back to the promised land. And since we're going to be moving rather quickly through, through the Bible, a year or two years might seem like a long time, but it really isn't. We'll be meeting three times a month, and so we're going to be still going to be moving at a, at a fairly rapid pace. Um, so because we're going to be moving through the Bible rather quickly, and because our pastor is a former airline pilot, I'm using the acronym FLIGHT. <laughs> so FLIGHT stands for facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, that's very important, history, and travel tips. So that's, that's what FLIGHT stands for. Let's, let's, let's examine each of those more, more closely. So facts are just the basics about who wrote the book and when it was written. Those are, those are the facts. The landmarks are a brief overview of the major themes of each Bible book. The, th the themes and threads that, that run through the Bible. The itinerary is the key points, the, the distinguishing topics and memorable moments in each book. The gospel. And this is this is a very important one. And I just remembered that I sent information to Christy for some handouts, and she printed them out for me and gave them to me. But I forgot to put them on the tables, so somebody can distribute those. So Jesus is in every book of the Bible, and this tells us where to find him. In, re in recent years, many, even, even prominent evangelical pastors, 
have said that we as Christians need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. There's just too much stuff in there that's not politically correct, um, that's not acceptable to our society. So we would be better off if we just dumped all of that and just stuck strictly to the New Testament. Well, there's a problem with that. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Well, the only scriptures that existed at that time was the Old Testament. And Jesus said they're about him. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later on it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So you see there that that's one of the scriptures, there are many, that talk about those three divisions that were known to the Jewish people. The last one, the Psalms, the Psalm is a metonymy. The Psalm stands for the entire writings. The Psalm is just the longest book of the writings. But when it, sa- when it says he, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, I don't think he just pointed to a few isolated verses here and there. I think he gave them the whole ball of wax. I mean, he, g- he gave them the whole thing. So the Old Testament scriptures are important to Christians. History, a bit of of the context to set the scene for each book. That's important so you know when it's happening. And then travel tips, points of application to keep in mind as you travel through the Bible. So we see many narratives, many stories. What, What do they mean for us today? Now, Let's get into Genesis, the book of beginnings. The Jewish people give uh, names to the books of the Torah that are different from what you're familiar with. They usually take the first word or the first few words of the book, and that's the name they give to the book. So the book that you call Genesis, they call Bereshit. It means in beginning, in, in the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and and you know that it's the book of beginnings in the sense that it's about the creation of the universe, the creation of the world. But there are several important beginnings that are given to us in the book of Genesis. It's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of the human race. It's the beginning of sin in the world. It's the beginning of the promise of redemption which comes immediately after that fall, after that first sin. It talks about the beginning of family life, the beginning of man-made civilization, and the beginning of the nations of the world. So the, the, the book of Genesis is truly a book of beginnings. In the book of Genesis, in this first book of the, of the Bible, we already see several hints of the Messiah. Immediately after the fall, we see the seed promise. 
that the Messiah was to come from the seed of a woman. We see the picture of the Messiah, of the coming Messiah, in the skins of the slain beasts. When Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, out of the Garden of Eden, they were covered with the skins of slain beasts. And so there's a, there's a principle in there, a, a symbol, a type, a parallel of being covered with the, the uh, skins of slaughtered animals. And then we go to Abel's blood sacrifice. We read about his sacrifice versus Cain's sacrifice. And there was a, a significant difference. And then finally we we read about the entrance into the Ark of Safety. That also pictures the coming Messiah and the safety that he affords. So sometimes the coming Messiah is stated explicitly. Sometimes it's just a symbol or a type or a parallel. And we'll see more of those next week when we finish with the book of Genesis from Abraham on. We can take a look at each of those hints of the Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What I find so fascinating about the seed promise is to whom it was directed. Now, Adam and Eve were there. They were present. They heard the seed promise. But... God issued the seed promise. He addressed the seed promise to Satan. You know, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's, he's talking directly to Satan. God is calling Satan out. He's saying, no matter how hard you try and no matter how long I allow you to do your dirty deeds, you're not going to be successful. So he's telling Satan that right from the start. Now, as, you, as many of you know, as many of you probably know, I really get into archaeology as, it's really, as it relates to the Bible. Well, here's, here's something that I find really fascinating. You've seen many pictures of the crucifixion, depicting the crucifixion of Christ. And in these pictures, you always see the feet of Jesus Christ placed one on top of the other, and then the spike driven from the top through the feet. Well, a few years ago, archaeologists found the skeleton of a man who had been crucified. Crucifixion was a common form of execution for criminals and rebels in the Roman Empire. The Romans had perfected the art of torture. They knew how to maximize pain. In the heel of the foot, there's a place where lots of nerves come together. So if you drive a spike through there, it really hurts. And what's, what the archaeologist found was that the nail wasn't driven into the feet from the top. It was driven in from the side through the heel. So the statement that, that God made to Satan, you shall bruise his heel, may have been fulfilled very literally. So on the right you see the, the, the skeleton and the spike, and on the left is a, a model of how archaeologists think this was done. 
So as you can imagine, if you're having a, a, a spike driven through your heel, you're not going to just sit there and take it. You're going to be thrashing wildly about. So they would take a thin board and, and use that to trap your, your foot up against the cross, and then they would drive the spike through the board, through your foot, into the cross. So, so this, it may be very literal, this, you shall bruise his heel. Um, apparently what happened with the skeleton was when they drove the spike into the cross, it hit a hard knot, and, and that caused the, the tip of the spike to get bent over. And that was very providential for archaeologists, because then that meant that they couldn't pull it back out after the person was dead. So, so they just left that spike in there. So archaeologists were able to figure out how, how, how crucifixion was done. So, so the other um, verses about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife uh, garments of skins and clothed them. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God. Cain's was not because Abel's involved the shedding of blood. So that was prophetically significant. And then the fact that Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives went into the ark to be protected from the judgment that was coming upon the earth. That was also a picture of the coming Messiah and the safety that he offers. Now let's, let's get into Genesis 1 through 11. There are four really major events that happen in these first few chapters of Genesis. The book of Genesis kind of divides itself very naturally into Genesis 1 through 11, which is talking about the beginning of the world and, the, and all of mankind. And then in chapter 12, it shifts to Abraham and, and the, the beginnings of, of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So those four events are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. So let's look at each of those. First of all, the creation. You, you are familiar with, I'm sure, the, the days of creation. On the first day, God created light. He made a, a distinction between light and dark. And then in the second day, he separated the, the waters and the sky and the sky at that time apparently was different from what it is today because there were waters uh, below the firmament, below the sky, and there were waters above the sky. Uh, creationists who study this think that there was some sort of can a canopy above the earth, water vapor or perhaps ice crystals high in the atmosphere, but there were waters above the earth and waters below the earth, but above the sky and below the sky, excuse me. And then in day three, we see this distinction between the dry land and the water that is made. And then in day four, we see the creation of the sun, the moon, the stars, the lights in the day and in the night. And that's kind of surprising to some people because, wait a minute, didn't he create light in day one? Now he's creating the sun, moon, and stars? How does that work? And then 
day five, we see the creation of the birds and the fish, animals in the water and in the sky. And then in day six, we see the creation of the land animals and of man. And then finally in day seven, this is the day when God declared that everything was good and that he, he took a rest from all that he had made. Now, there are some parallels in, in this creation account. So the first day parallels the fourth day, the second day parallels the fifth day, the third day parallels the sixth day. In the first day, God created the, the light, and on the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and stars. And the second day, he created water and the sky, the atmosphere. On the fifth day, he created the sea creatures and the birds to occupy the water and the sky. And then on the, uh, the third day, he created the, the land and the vegetation. And then on the sixth day, he created the land animals and the man to live on that land. So remember that when God first brought matter and energy into existence, it was tohu vabohu. It was tohu and bohu. It was formless and empty, formless and void. So you can think of it this way, that in the first three days, God formed his creation. He brought form to his creation. In the second three days, he filled it. He populated it. So he, he, he had light but then he populated it with sun, moon, and stars. He, he created the water and the sky, and then he populated it with fish and with birds and, and so on. So you can think of it in that way as, as how God created it. There is that parallel structure. Now, many who do not like the Bible or who do not take it seriously, do not think it is the inspired word of God, and even some Christians will say, wait a minute, now, there's, there's two creation accounts. There's one in Genesis chapter 1, and there's a different one in Genesis chapter 2. And they seem to be at odds with one another. There, there's even a, a different name for God in these two accounts. In, in the first account, he's Elohim. In the second account, he's Yahweh. So what's going on here? This is two different accounts, two different traditions. Well, that's not really the case. It's really the same thing. It's just looking at creation from two different perspectives. In chapter 1, God is the creator. In chapter 2, he's God the covenant keeper. Different aspects of God. In the, so in, that's why in the first chapter he's referred to as Elohim. In the second chapter he's referred to as Yahweh. In the first chapter we see God as powerful. In chapter 2, we see God as personal. In chapter 1, we learn about the creation of the universe. In chapter 2, we're just learning about the creation of man. In chapter 1, there's a climax with the creation of man. That's the, the end of the, of the narrative. But in chapter 2, this account climaxes with the establishment of marriage. Chapter 1 is about the six days of creation, and chapter 1 is just about the, the sixth day of creation. So that's why they're 
seem to be two different accounts, but they're really, they're really complementary. They're not two different accounts. They're not at odds with one another. Then we, we read about the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And a little further down it says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the name of the second river is the Gihon, the name of the third river is the Tigris, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So where was Eden located? Well, because there are still two rivers called the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, it has generally been assumed that the Garden of Eden was located somewhere in Mesopotamia, somewhere around those two rivers, the Tigris, Tigris and the Euphrates. There is a bit of a translation issue was the Garden of Eden the headwaters of the four rivers, or was it the mouth of the four rivers? In other words, did the four rivers flow out from Eden, or did they come to Eden and converge there? So depending on which of those two understandings you have, that is why some people will say that the Garden of Eden was down here, near the, near the Pers- head of the Persian Gulf. And others will say, no, it was up here in Turkey because that's, that's the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates. So there are lots of different ideas about where the Garden of Eden might have been located. We don't know for sure, of course, but that hasn't stopped people from speculating and coming up with theories. So, was the Garden of Eden in Iraq? Was it in Turkey? Uh, Stan Dale says that it was in Tanzania, in Africa. And there's, David Roll says it was in Iranian Azerbaijan. So, let's take a look at, at two of these that I find the most interesting, the first one and the last one. Uh, there are four rivers here that converge just before they run into the Persian Gulf. Now that river that you see down here, if I can get my pointer in the right place. Um, this here is not currently a river, but satellite imagery showed that there's a river bed there that flows out of, in a little insight, you can see that it flowed out of what is today Saudi Arabia. So it's dry now, but there are actually four rivers that converged in that area. And so some people think that the Garden of Eden was there. Now, David Rohl has a different idea. David Rohl is an archaeologist, and he's unusual among secular archaeologists in that he actually takes the Bible Bible narrative seriously, which is unusual for secular archaeologists. But he thinks that the the uh, Garden of Eden was located in what is today Iranian Azerbaijan. Now, 
That's not to be confused with the Republic of Azerbaijan. There's a country called Azerbaijan, but this Azerbaijan is a region in, in northwestern uh, Iran. So he thinks that this entire, uh, this entire red area here was Eden, and, and he points out that Eden, the Garden of Eden, wasn't all of Eden. Now, when we, we, we think of the Garden of Eden and Eden, we think of, well, they're one and the same. But he points out that the Garden of Eden was eastward in Eden. So the Garden of Eden, he says, was not the entire region of Eden. It was just an area in the east of Eden. So he, um, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a little, little green area, um, which he believes was the Garden of Eden. So anyway, those are some different ideas about where the Garden of Eden might have been. Then we come to the most tragic event in the Bible, the fall. All of salvation history, all of the Bible has to deal, all of the rest of the Bible has to deal with correcting this problem of restoring mankind to access with God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now Satan knew that God had not said that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, but he wanted to begin planting some doubts in the mind of Eve. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, already Eve is beginning to fall for Satan's deception, because God didn't tell him that they couldn't touch the tree, uh, but Eve is beginning to, to fall for Satan's deception. Satan is, is suggesting to her that God is really not really a loving father. He's a despot. He's a tyrant. He's placing unnecessary restrictions upon you. Maybe he didn't say you couldn't eat of any tree, but he could have. So Eve is beginning to fall for that deception. So Satan is, is convincing her that God is just looking out for number one. You need to look out for yourselves. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you see, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan is saying to Eve, God's holding out on you. He isn't really telling you the whole story. If you just do what I say, you're going to be much better off. And what's so ironic about this statement that Satan made, you will be like God, is that Adam and Eve were already like God. I mean, they were created in his likeness and image. They were already like God. So you, if you want to become more like God, draw near to him. Don't rebel against him. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, later on, we'll see a second Adam. And the second Adam will succeed where the first Adam failed. 
In John 2.16, we read about the lust of the eyes, uh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Adam, the first Adam, failed in all of these categories. He, he said the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. So he failed in all three of the categories. But when Jesus w was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he succeeded in all of these areas. He was... Um, Satan said to him, command the stone to become bread. The devil showed him all the kingdoms. Throw yourself down from here. So in each of those categories, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Now, Bible chronology. Let me say a few words about that. A subject near and dear to my heart. <laughs> um, Christians often, especially new Christians, when they learn that the Bible contains chronological information, they get all excited. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to figure this out. I'm just going to go strictly by the Bible, and I'm going to go through in the Bible, and whenever I see some chronological information, I'm going to take note of it. They don't seem to realize that Christians have been doing this for centuries. They seem to think that they are the first one who ever thought of this. <laughs> and I confess, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody about this. I've been looking at Bible chronology for 30 years now, I guess. So you start out with the, with the genealogies that are given in Genesis chapter 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So got that. When Seth had lived 105 years, he, he fathered Enosh. So I got that. When, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. So I got that. And, and on and on you go until you come up to the time of the flood. And then after the flood, in Genesis chapter 11, the, the genealogy is taken up again. But it's not as easy as it first seems. <laughs> um, When, when we come to the flood, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of, he of the heavens were open. So this is the first thing that, that I learned that you need to learn about Bible chronology, is you need to read very carefully. <laughs> Noah, it doesn't say that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. So that, that's the first thing that you need to learn. Read carefully. And the second thing that you need to learn about biblical chronology is, an example of it is in this verse. This is, this is after the flood now, when we resume the genealogies in chapter 11. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And so you diligently write that down. And we're, we're blessed now to have computers and computer graphics and spreadsheets, and we can use all of that stuff to, to make even more impressive Bible chronologies. But the point that I want to make about this verse is the flood was a year long. From the time that the flood began, and then it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but by the time 
the waters receded from the flood, that was a full year. So when it says two years after the flood, does that mean two years after the beginning of the flood or two years after the end of the flood? So this is just a simple example, but it could throw your chronology off a year depending on how you understand that and how it should be understood. So the second thing that I would say about Bible chronology is always understand that there may be more than one understanding and the understanding that you have, the one that seems so obvious to you from reading this verse, this passage, may not, may or may not be the correct one. So always understand that there, there may be other understandings. And the other thing, um, I almost hesitate to mention this because <laughs> it may blow your carefully constructed Bible chronology to smithereens, it did mine. <laughs> But one of the things that you need to do when you're studying Bible chronology and, and constructing a Bible chronology is you always need to keep a good dose of humility. You always need to be able to accept new information as it comes along. You know, don't get so, you know, no, this is the way I heard it. This is the way I always understood it. That can't be true. Well, maybe it is. So at least take a look at it. I, t I spoke recently about um, textual criticism and textual variance. And I was just talking about the New Testament because I wanted to keep the, the Old Testament and the New Test Testament separate because the, the textual issues in the two are different. There's different circumstances, different considerations. But with the Old Testament, there are three main strains of text that we find. There's the Masoretic text, and I would venture to say that probably all of your Bibles are based on the Masoretic text. There are a few that use the Septuagint, but those but they specifically say that you know this is the Septuagint. And then there's a third one called the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritans were a hybrid people. Uh, they had a hybrid religion. Uh, they are Gentiles who were moved into that northern kingdom after the Assyrians took the Gentiles captivity, or took, excuse me, took Israel captivity and moved them out of Israel. And they moved the Gentiles, these Gentiles, into the land. And they adopted sort of a hybrid Jewish religion. And that's the Samaritans that you read about in the New Testament, the Samaritan woman at the well, and so on. But they only believed that the Pentateuch was the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. So that, that's all they believed in. They didn't believe in the prophets or the writings, just, just the Pentateuch. But the point is that these three textual traditions are different when it comes to Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11. The Masoretic text that we're familiar with says that Adam to the flood was 1,656 years. The Septuagint, or at least the, the Hebrew text that was used to make the Septuagint, we, don't, we no longer have that text. All we have is evidence of it in the Septuagint, 
which is a Greek translation, but, but that text, that Hebrew text that was used to make the Septuagint is different from the Masoretic text. It says that from Adam to the flood was 2,242 years. And the, the Samaritan Pentateuch says that Adam to the flood was 1,307 years. And there are also differences between the, the time period of the flood to Abraham. So those are different. And I don't know how, how well you can see that chart, but that's just a chart of the individual people in, in the Genesis chapter 5 genealogies before the flood and the, the uh, Genesis chapter 11 genealogies after the flood. And you can see that how each one of them is different. Those three. Um, I'll just mention this. If I can get my... There's a man here not named Canaan. And he is not in, listed in the genealogy in the Masoretic text. He is listed in the genealogy of the Septuagint. I won't comment a lot about him right now, but what it, when this becomes significant is when we get to the book of Matthew, and it gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it does include Canaan. So the, the genealogy that's given in your Bibles in the Old Testament in Genesis is going to be different from the one that you find in Matthew. So I'll talk more about that when we get to Matthew. So that's a little tease. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Well, yeah. uh, is it correct to say that what helped me when I was trying to work through all this, and I, haven't, I don't even figure it out. You know more than I do. But <laughs> one thing I noticed that's really helped me with because of Luke Acts, a lot of things are stated for theological reasons, which would be a bigger priority yeah. than how many exact years somebody lived. And so the, the uh, genealogies in the New Testament have a theological point to me. Now, that's not saying the things didn't happen in the Bible of yeah. errors. Yeah. But the, the theological reasons are really what the author is bringing out, which we need to at least consider. Yeah. Would you yeah. agree with that yeah. statement? We, because in, in the genealogies that are given in the New Testament, in both Matthew and Luke, the number of years aren't given, just the, the names of the people are given. So, so the emphasis is on the theology of it. And there's also an issue with Matthew about the 14, 14, 14. One of, the, one of the generations is counted twice, so I'll deal with that more too when we get to it, Matthew. <laughs> um, th there's a, an organization called Associates for Biblical Research. Uh, they, they publish a, a magazine called Bible and Spade, and for the most part they deal with Archaeology and issues related to that, but they also deal with other historical issues. And they have um, been investigating recently the the um, the genealogies that are given in the Septuagint. And while they would agree with most commentators, most scholars that generally the Masoretic text is more reliable, more accurate than that of the Septuagint. 
but they make a good case that when it comes to these genealogies that are given in Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11, that when we're dealing with those, the numbers that are found in the, master, in the Septuagint are more accurate and more, more reliable. So that's why I say always keep an open mind about these, these non-salvific issues like Bible chronology. So I'm uh, busy finding out how, how all that works now with, with these new different numbers than, than we are used to. Okay, here we go. here's another controversial one. <laughs> the sons of God in, in Genesis chapter 6. We are told that the, that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of, of men. Well, who are these sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? There are many different explanations. So were they the wicked line of Cain? Were they just the opposite? Were they apostate Sethites who intermarried with the women from the line of Cain? Were they despotic rulers who you know, took the wives that they wanted by force? Were they just ordinary men who took the wives that they wanted without considering what God wanted? Or were they fallen angels? So these are just some of the ideas that people have come up with. Now, of these various options, I have come to the conclusion that the fallen angels is the one that is correct. Many of the people that I have talked about who cannot accept this, this explanation of who the sons of God were, the reason that they can't accept this is simply because they find it so disgusting and disturbing to think that this could have happened. I agree it is disgusting and disturbing, but nevertheless, I do think that's what happened. Especially when you put Genesis 6 together with Jude 1-6, and 2 Peter 2.4. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So fallen angels are not all the same. There's a, category, a special category of especially evil, wicked fallen angels who did something that they should not have done. The uh, familiar words of the, of the King James the angels did not, who did not keep their first estate. And, and both Jude and, and Peter seem to be talking about this incident. So I, I won't uh, go into, any, into this anymore, but a good book that you can read about the angels is, co is called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Now, this is not a blanket endorsement of everything that Michael Heiser says, but I do think that this book will help you to get an insight into, into the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. I've already talked about the two Adams and how uh, the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. Now, next, I want to mention 
that Eric and Bob have talked about the chiasm, the chiastic structure. And they pointed out many examples of the chiastic structure in the Gospels and in the writings of, of Apostle Paul, the Epistles of Paul. And probably most of you have, know what a chiasm is, maybe some of you don't, but it's just that, that structure where you work your way into a, to a focal point and then you work your way back out again in reverse order. Um, this is not a new, a later development. It's something that's, that's in the Bible, in the scriptures from the beginning. I, when I talked about um, the book of Esther, I pointed out how the entire book of Esther is arranged as a chiasm. And that is also true in the book of Genesis when we read about Noah and the flood. That whole narrative is, is arranged in a chiastic structure. So I don't know how, how well you can see that there because it's, it's going through that whole account of, of the Noah and the ark and the flood. So you can see that the first item has to do with Noah and the last item also has to do with Noah. The second item has to do with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The second to the last item also has to do with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it's all, it's all moving us toward this, this focal point. And at the focal point, we see that God remembers Noah. That's the focal point of the story. Now, when it says that God remembers Noah, that doesn't mean that God... Oh, I forgot all about that. I, I, I left the water running. I, I got to go take care of it. That's, that's not what it means when it says that God remembered Noah. When it says that God remembered Noah, that means that he is going to fulfill his covenant promises to Noah. He's going to carry those promises that he makes to Noah. Clear up in, um, in letter E, the covenant with Noah. Uh, this is in chapter 6, 18 through 20, verses 18 through 20. So he made this covenant with Noah. He's going to keep those promises. He's going to bring that about. So just, just remember that when, you're, when you see remember. It's not just... It's not like God has forgotten and now he remembers. The, the flood chronology... People who, who don't like the Bible, who just look at the Bible as literature, they say, well, these early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, that's all just myth and legend, and we don't really get anything that's anything like history until we get at least to the time of Abraham. Well, what is ironic about that assertion is that the flood chronology and the, and the days and the dates and the lengths of time are more precise, more exact than, than they are later on. So um, you, you can go through the, the flood chronology. It tells us that uh, the flood begins in the 600th year of, no, of Noah on the sec, in the second month on the 17th day. And then it tells us that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it tells us that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat after, uh, on, on the 17th, on the, in the 600th year of Noah, 
in the seventh month on the seventeenth day, and so on. It, so it's a very it's very detailed and precise. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It doesn't it doesn't say that this all happened once upon a time. It didn't happen in a galaxy far away, long, long ago. I mean, it, happened, it gives us details. It gives us chronological details about what happened. It's not, it's not uh, fairy tales. It's not myth and legend. So Noah's Ark is a drawing, a diagram of Noah's Ark, comparing it to down on the left-hand side, you see a, a human down in the left-hand corner and an elephant and a semi-truck. So it's giving us a comparison, a size comparison. Now, this is based on the idea that a cubit is a foot and a half, about 18 inches. So they, they calculate from that that it was 450 feet long. Uh, the dimensions of, of the ark in the Bible are not given in feet. They're given in cubits. So you have to figure out how long 300 cubits is. And one thing that you need to understand is that not everybody agrees on how long a cubit was. Different cultures had different lengths of cubits. And, you, and quite often, a culture would have a, a short cubit and a long cubit. So there, there are different lengths of cubits. Now, for many years, people went usually with that 18-inch cubit foot and a half. Um, the thinking has changed somewhat so that the arc that you will see at the arc exhibit in Kentucky is based on a, a 20.4 inch cubit. So it's a little longer. It's, instead of 450 feet long, it's 510 feet long. So it's a little bigger, just simply based on a different size cubit. Um, the, the Bible tells us that that there were three decks in the ark. It doesn't give us all of this detail about which things were on which deck, but that's speculation based on people who have studied the ark and, and who know about the handling of livestock and animals, and so that this is how they think it was probably set up. The, um, the thinking about the shape of the ark has also changed somewhat. Uh, back in the time of Henry Morris, it used to be thought that the ark was just a big barge. It was just a big wooden box because the thinking was, well, all it had to do was float. It didn't have to go anywhere. It just had to float. Well, the, the thinking in that regard has changed a little bit too. It is thought now that the ark was more boat-shaped, more ship-shaped because it is thought that the ark didn't have, just have to float. It had to be. It had to have some mechanism, so that it was oriented into the wind, so that, that it could ride over the oncoming waves. Because if the wave, if large waves struck it from the side, it could capsize. So it had to be designed so that it could face into the wind all the time and ride over the waves. And so that's why they have speculated that there was this um, sail-like structure at the at the end of the ark to keep it oriented into the wind. This is a picture of Mount Ararat in Turkey. There have been many, many expeditions to Mount Ararat looking for the Ark. But technically, 
the book of Genesis doesn't say that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. What it really says is on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, the mountains, plural. So it's not necessarily saying that it came to rest on this one peak that we call Mount Ararat today. It was somewhere in that mountainous region. Now, a few years ago, they found this strange boat-like structure in, in the mountainous region of Ararat, and some people claim that this is the petrified remains of Noah's Ark. In fact, the, the government of the nation of Turkey actually declared that this was Noah's Ark, and they built a tourist center, I mean, a visitor center there. So some, some Christians claim that this is Noah's Ark. Others, other Christians say, no, this is just a, a lava flow which happens to be in the shape that look, kind of looks like a ship. It's not Noah's Ark. So they're still looking for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. But one thing that this, this does point out, whether it's the Ark or not the Ark, one thing that it does point out is that religious artifacts don't convince unbelievers. I mean, there, there's nobody out there who's saying, hmm, I would believe in God if they could find Noah's Ark, but they haven't found it yet, so I, I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. Remember in, the, in Luke 16, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man said, if we could just send somebody back from the dead, my brothers would believe that, and they'd be convinced then. And he was told, no. Even if somebody came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. So if you don't want to believe in God, no amount of proof is going to convince you to believe in God. You know that it's primarily a, a matter of the heart, a matter of, of the attitude. It's not, it's not the lack of proof that, that keeps people from believing. Now, after the flood, lifespans dropped off very precipitously, very precipitously, um, geometrically. But then they, after they dropped off, they, they leveled off. Now, people who, who study creation and the flood and so on have come up with a number of ideas why this might be. Uh, it could be that the vapor canopy up above the earth shielded out a lot of the um, cosmic rays from outer space, a lot of the radiation, so people live longer for that reason. Others have suggested that the atmosphere had a higher oxygen content back then, or that there was greater atmospheric pressure back then. So it could be any, any of these things that contributed to the long lifespans versus the short lifespans. Chapter 10 is the table of nations. It goes into the, the sons of, of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, and talks about their sons, and almost all study Bibles will have a map, something like this, showing where the the sons of the, the descendants of the three sons where they went, and so some do it by color coding like this. So you see the the sons of Japheth going up to the north and the northwest into Europe, 
and we see the sons of Shem in the green there going to the to the east, and we see the the sons of Ham going down into to Africa. And so there are many many different variations of this of this type of map. Here, here's one that uses different uh, geometric shapes to indicate which sons went which direction. And here's a one that that goes extends a little further to the east. And here's a, one that extends a little further to the south. And, and this one also uses a, an inset to, to extend the map further to the south. And so there are different, different types of maps here. Once again, we see the different colors for the, different, for the three suns. Uh, this one uses, um, you see the different colored arcs. So we have a yellow arc indicating that Japheth went to the north and northwest and the green arc showing that Shem went to the east and the, the orange arc showing that Ham went to the, to the south and the southwest into Africa. One thing that it's always kind of puzzled me about this type of map is that they seem to focus just on the Middle East and maybe a little bit of Europe and a little bit of Africa. But if you truly believe that all of the people on earth today are descended from Noah's three sons, why don't you go on and talk a little bit about that? So I, I kind of wish that, that they would do that. Uh, if you're interested, uh, there are books about how the ancient Chinese language, the characters of the ancient Chinese language, uh, indicate a knowledge that these people came from the Garden of Eden, from Noah and the flood. So uh, that's a little bit about the peoples of the Far East. Uh, also, there's a book called The Red Record, which talks about the uh, early understandings of the American Indians, how they, how they also have in their history uh, indications that they came from the Garden of Eden and the flood. Now, these are not inspired scriptures, so they don't, you know, you can't rely upon them. There, there are distortions and errors in them, of course. But they do indicate that these people came from there. And I also have some uh, some uh, links to various creation websites that, that deal with this whole issue of, of Chinese and, and American Indian. Okay, Shinar. This is after the flood now. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words... And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And then earlier, back in chapter 10, the beginning of his kingdom, meaning Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. So this is just a map show, uh, it's using satellite, a satellite photo showing that they came from the area where the ark came to rest down to the plain of Shinar. Um, and once again, it's at the head of the Persian Gulf. So I don't know this for a fact, but it's possible that that they were coming back to where Eden was located and that they were trying to recreate Eden by human efforts. That's possible. I don't know that for certain. So there we have the, the statement about Nimrod again, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. And there's that map again showing where the, the various cities that, that Nimrod built were located. 
Then they said, come, let us build to ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So it's thought that this Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. There, there were many of those in ancient, in ancient Mesopotamia. So the thinking was that it was a ziggurat. Um, here's just a diagram comparing uh, a ziggurat to the to a football field and to the Giza pyramid. Um, it is thought that the Tower of Babel. Even to this day, it was the tallest brick building, brick structure that was ever built. See, the the, uh, the pyramid of Giza is taller, but it, remember it was built of stone. So it is thought that, that this Tower of Babel was probably the, the tallest brick building that was ever built. So the people of Babylon built a city. And the reason they built a city was in order not to be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So they wanted security. They built a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. So they wanted praise. They wanted to think that they were really great, that they were really hot stuff. Now, one of, one of the things that's interesting about this is it says they wanted to make a name for themselves. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. So this could really be taken two ways, maybe both ways, that they wanted to make a name for themselves, but also that Noah had chosen the line of Shem to be predominant. And they wanted to make their own Shem, their own name, and replace uh, the, uh, the one that Noah had chosen at the destruction of God. They wanted to do it through human efforts. So, a unified humanity using all of its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. There, there's even, there was even a, a pagan goddess who, who said that she wanted people, you know, wanted people to to be in one place and to live in cities and be all together. You know, just the opposite of what the true God wanted. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy, mankind determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. So next time we'll, we'll begin to see how God is working through Abraham to establish Israel and, and to bring about uh, to repair the damage that was done by the fall and by the Tower of Babel. One, one final thing I want to mention here is that when it says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men of men had built and when God says come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Well we know that that God is not a man, he's not a person, he's not limited by space and time. So it, it's quite possible that when it talks about the Lord came down and he said, let us go down, it's not just, it's not just an anthropomorphism, it's not just you know, speaking of God in, in human terms, but 
it may be that God, it's God's way of mocking what man has done. In other words, they said this tower is going to reach up to heaven. And God had to come down to even look at it. You know, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's not what man claimed it was. You know, it's way down there. It's, not, not, it's nowhere near reaching up to heaven. So that may be what's, what's going on here when it says that the Lord came down and, and said, let us go down. Well, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Um, one of the things that, <laughs> one of the things that um, I want to do as we go through the, the books of the Bible, um, you're all basically familiar with the narratives of the Old Testament. But as you're reading through these narratives, every once in a while, you'll come upon a verse or a passage that makes you go, hmm. <laughs> Why did, they, why did they do that? Or what does that mean? Or why is that recorded in the Bible? And um, there's, one, there's one other thing that I could spend a little bit of time on. I, I'll ask you, do you want me to do this? Because <laughs> we're, we're already 20 after 8. So. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> you talked me into it. Um, this is regarding an incident that happened right after the flood. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, now that's significant. Why, why does it say Ham, the father of Canaan? Saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. That also seems to be significant that he told his brothers about it. He didn't just keep it to himself. He told them about it. Then Shem and Jabez took a garment, laid it both on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, I've heard many different explanations of what's going on here. You know, what does it mean he saw the nakedness of his father? What exactly does that mean? I heard many different explanations, and I can't necessarily say that any one of them is wrong. But what does that mean? And, and here's, the, here's the part that's puzzling to people. When Noah awoke from his wine, when, when he sobered up, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of the servant shall he be to his brothers. So if Ham did this, whatever this was, why did he say, Cursed be Canaan? Why didn't he say, Cursed be Ham? Well, I, I'm not prepared to say this is definitely the way it is, but here, here's a, a possibility that I came across while I was studying this, and this may be the explanation. I don't necessarily claim that it is. But what does it mean that he saw the nakedness of his father? Well, this scripture in Leviticus 18 may give us some insight. These are in the instructions that God gave to Israel. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. 
You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So it may be that Ham had sexual relations with his mother, with Noah's wife. And it may be that Canaan was the product of this incestuous relationship. And so that is why Noah would say, cursed be Canaan, rather than cursed be Ham. That's just a possibility. And the other, the other thing that, that makes this so interesting is that when God gave these instructions to Israel, it was in the context of just before they entered the promised land. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And one of the instructions was, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives uncovered nakedness. So that's just an interesting aside. So, so next time we'll, we'll finish the, the book of Genesis. Um, any takers who would like to close us in prayer? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our teacher, Dana, and we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, and I pray for my brothers and sisters that we, we drive safely tonight, and um, Lord, we pray that we grow closer to you, that you, through our, the word, would help us to persevere to that day that you come through the clouds to bring us home. We thank you for Dana. We pray for the future studies and for those who will come and hear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.